difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tosh Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Uh, Genevieve is not with us yet again, but we are joined by our friend, music critic, Stephen Hyden. Hello, Steve. Hello. So on last week's show, we talked about Woodstock, Michael Wadley's sweeping look at the Woodstock Music Festival. This week, we're leaving upstate New York for Uptown New York City and the Harlem Cultural Festival, a six-week concert series held in the summer of 1969, whose list of performers practically doubles as a roll call for the top R&B, soul, jazz, and gospel talent working in the late 60s. Captured on videotape by director Hal Tolchin, the footage failed to attract a buyer, but has been rescued from obscurity by Amir Questlove Thompson for the new documentary Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Beyond rescuing priceless performance footage, the film features interviews with artists and concertgoers to put the festival in the context of what was happening in music and politics and the culture at large at a pivotal moment. We'll talk it over after the break. Nobody ever heard of the Harlem Culture Festival. Nobody would believe it happened. Six weekends of major artists. The Panthers were the security and kids were sitting up on the trees. I was nervous. I didn't expect a crowd like that. Something very important was happening. It wasn't just about the music. 1969 was a change of era in the black community. The styles were changing. Music was changing. And revolution was coming together. We are a new people. We are a beautiful people. That concert took my life from black and white into color. What did everyone think of this movie? Tasha, we'll start with you. I dug it. I mean, I, (laughs) how can I say this without sounding terrible? Uh, When people talk about white guilt, I feel like one of the things they should be talking about is uh, our complete failure as a culture to take note of events like this and uh, value them as much as we apparently value Woodstock. Like the idea that this was all shot the same year that Woodstock happened. And then this footage has never been seen until now because nobody showed an interest in it for decades. Like that is just a cultural failing. You know, obviously things have more cultural and historical value the longer we get from the event, but there's just so much here, you know, it's so, it's so vivid and, and so fascinating. The performances are so strong. It seems so culturally significant. I feel like the contextualization that we that we end up getting that we wouldn't have gotten if this had been like a TV documentary in the 70s is pretty invaluable in terms of having all of these interviewees talk about the cultural and social and historical and political, just like all sorts of different aspects of what was going on in the world, what they felt like when they were young, seeing this concert, experiencing this show, this series of shows that happened over the course of six weeks, like 
it shapes the story in a way that's fascinating and that we couldn't have gotten that perspective on it all those years ago. But there's there's still no reason this footage should not have been treasured and valued 30 years ago. And it's a little embarrassing that it wasn't. It's This isn't my favorite style of music. Again, things sometimes get a little jammy and a little uh, improv-y in a way that's just very familiar from like outdoor concerts and to some degree from live music in general. So there were there were points where my attention wandered a little bit uh, just because things were going on. But when people are talking about why they were there and what it meant, meant to them, I think that stuff is fascinating. And in the same sort of way, I'm sure we'll get into this, but uh, as like, I love the contextualization of Woodstock and the audience, just the amount of time that the camera spends with the audience, watching their experiences and picking out and finding individual people who always seem to know when the TV was on them. There's a, there's a, a whole lot more like turning to the camera and, and smiling or in some cases winking in a really flirty way than I, I remember from Woodstock. But just uh, by and large, I, I really dug this documentary. I, I thought it was pretty riveting. And I say that again as somebody not always into concert films. I love this film. <laughs> I saw it at, at, well, quote unquote, at Sundance. Uh, it was all virtual this year, and I, I couldn't wait to see it again. Uh, I wish this film was four hours long. I hope they kind of merchandise <laughs> merchandise it to death. I'd love to see complete footage of these concert performances, but I feel like it's kind of great as it is. Like it, the, the, the selection performances are, are really well chosen. I The interviews are fantastically insightful um i love that the thompson talks to you know uh, this guy named musa jackson who's just you know i'm sure I, 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 he was just a very young concert attendee and he kind of opens and closes the film uh with kind of what tasha was was talking about because this faded from historical record in the mainstream and this this footage was just not there it's like watching it was just you know it was just confirmation of him that it really happened you know it, it was an incredibly moving moment to me just to have him uh, do that reminiscence but i think it moves along and it's like like a well-sequenced album in many ways it touches on different topics and brings different things in and gives you enough context of what was going on in some really insightful ways at, at, at key moments but also when when it's the time's right just lets the performances speak for themselves and i think some of the performances are just re revelatory <laughs> like you'll never look at the fifth dimension the same way again <laughs> Scott, how about you? I liked it. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm maybe not quite as over the moon for it. I mean, there is a conventionality to the way it's constructed. I, I think there's maybe a limit to how much I can like a documentary that is kind of this conventionally constructed, even though I think it's thoughtfully done. And I think the choice to show people the footage and to, to see them react to it is, a, is a, that's the most striking touch from a filmmaking perspective and uh, it is one that, that that i think is largely successful and in, in, in moving as you as you say but um but i mean i obviously just as a social document you know as a record of the, these performances it's just you know full of stunning moments and and uh it's a great find i mean to imagine that we have gone for so long without recognizing that this happened and what this meant for the people of Harlem at the, at the time, or just gotten a chance to like see so many greats at the top of their game. I mean, it's 
crazy. Like, how, and even at the time, like, surely there was an audience for this. I mean, this is just, this is just it's it's crazy that, that this, you know. And 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 I think there there is something to be said too about like the experience of what what the film would have looked like had it come in constructed then and what it, what it looks like now. Because 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 you wouldn't have had the kind of perspective that you have now. And there's something valuable about that about, about being able to kind of look back from the distance of 50 years and and be able to see what it all meant you know i think if you if this were if they were to take this footage and and put together a film at the time you would have something certainly a little closer to woodstock where you would probably just you know be focusing you know on the performances and maybe some cutaways to to the audience but i i think the social context to what was happening is so absolutely you know critical and and uh and it only gets more valuable i think to see it from the kind of distance we see it from Steve, how about you? Yeah, I'm going to echo a lot of what has already been said. I think that just as a document, this film has tremendous value because, you know, we we look at a lot of music documentaries and they tend to reiterate what other documentaries have already done. I don't know how many documentaries have been done about the Beach Boys, for instance, like in recent years, or how many documentaries there are about the Beatles, you know, and, and I'll watch every single Beatles documentary that there is, but like, it seems like there's a lot of repetition in this field. And here we have an event that uh, hasn't been really discussed at all. And it's depicting all of these musical giants at a very fascinating time in their history. You look at someone like Stevie Wonder, for instance, who I think at the time of this festival would have been around probably 19 or 20 years old. So he's not the child star that he was in the early 60s, but he's not the Stevie Wonder that he's going to become in the 70s, like this genius superstar. So it's a very interesting between period that you see him in. Or to see like Mahalia Jackson sharing a stage with Mavis Staples. And there's this incredible sequence in the middle of the movie, like where they're doing this just awe-inspiring gospel performance. And it's like two generations, like bridging the gap, sharing the stage. And it's just incredible to watch. Um, I will say that the approach that Questlove takes in the film, which you've touched on, where you have this tremendous footage and then you have people watching it 50 years later, It was occasionally frustrating for me as a viewer because the footage is so compelling and it's so electric. It sounds so good. It looks so good that occasionally while watching the film, I didn't want to be pulled away from it to hear someone talk, no matter how insightful they were. Like occasionally watching this film, it feels like being at a concert and having someone talk mm. next to you or behind you while you're trying to watch the show. And it's like, yeah, you're even if you're really smart, I want to see these people in their prime. And there's there are moments in the film like where, for instance, the great jazz guitarist Sonny Chirac is shown playing this crazy guitar solo. And I don't know if I've ever seen footage of, of Sonny Chirac play before. And you can't hear him playing because someone's talking over him the entire time. And at that moment, I was like, I kind of wish you had just given Sonny here a little bit more of a spotlight. Or at the beginning of the movie, they show the Chambers brothers playing. And again, they're another group that I, that I know of from the 60s, but I've never really seen them on film looking this vivid before. And I found myself wishing that maybe it would have been interesting if this film had more of a of the verite approach of Woodstock. Like if it were more of just an immersive experience where 
Questlove let the footage speak for itself without having people explain the subtext. Like if we could have just seen the footage and drawn our own conclusions from it, like maybe that would have been an interesting approach. And I want to see the movie again and see how I feel because I think I expected that approach when I saw the movie for the first time. And I wonder if I see it a second time, if I'll feel differently about it. Because by and large, again, I really like the movie a lot. And I will say on Questlove's behalf, I think he does a really good job with this film where he's essentially making like a series of documentaries in this film. It's like he has the section about the fifth dimension and like the racial politics that they had to deal with at the time, essentially as like a black pop group that was sounding white, like perceived that way and how they wanted to perform in Harlem for that reason. So you have that section, you have the section about gospel music where Questlove kind of digs into that for about 10 minutes. You have the section about salsa music. You have the section about like blues. So it's almost like a series of like 10 or 15 minute documentaries that unfold. And he's able to do that in a way that I think still holds together as a film and is very interesting and he's really packing a lot of information into this film in that way. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you how you all felt about that. Again, I, I like the film overall, but I, there's a part of me that's like, if there's a Blu-ray of this, I want to watch the uncut performances because I think the footage is so compelling. And I, I kind of feel like at times I wish it was allowed to just unfold a little bit more and be more a little bit more expansive. Yeah, I, I get that feeling, but I would, yeah, I would definitely buy like a multi-disc box set that had the uncut thing. But you can't have both at once as the thing. And, and I don't know if I would trade, you know, Mavis Staples telling the story of performing with Mahalia Jackson for the contextless footage of the, of the same thing because it's so remarkable. And the fifth dimension, you know, I think if we just saw that performance, I'd uh, be like, oh, well, that is a different side of of this of what I always thought was a fairly bland, if you know, very pleasant pop group uh, to have all this like, sort of gospel influence there. But when you get uh, Marilyn McCoo and I, I forget who her, her partner is, I'm sorry, you know, explaining the context of it, I, it's it made quite remarkable. And uh, that, that footage of, of McCoo watching herself is so extraordinary too. You know, it's just, uh, you know, imagine me confronted with, you know, footage of you as a, as a young person that you hadn't seen in a long time, even if you weren't, you know, a huge pop star at the time. Yeah, I mean, I love that interview footage, too. I think it works really well during that sequence for the reason that you said that it transforms the fifth dimension from a group that this is the group that covered show tunes from hair mm -hmm. and is looked at as, you know, not a terribly consequential music group from the 60s. And Questlove gives them a dimension in this film that I think really adds to them. And that's great there. But there are other sequences where I was like, I don't need someone to explain Stevie Wonder to me. You know, give me Stevie, give me an uncut Stevie Wonder. Can I just have like four minute song of Stevie Wonder without people talking over it? I feel like if there were, if this were a three hour film, there could have been more opportunities just to have like a five minute performance where there was no talking. And I, I wonder if that would have been like the best version of this film. I think it's a really strong film as it is. But I almost wish Hulu or whoever it was had said to Questlove, give us the long edit of this, you know, or maybe we'll make an alternate director's cut version available to people. Because again, like as strong as the film is, there are moments in the movie where I'm like, I just want to see Gladys Knight and the Pips sing a song without 
you cutting away so quickly. This footage is so great. You know, it almost like plays against that aspect of the film a little bit. Because it's like, I, I, oh, I, I'm so happy watching this. I don't need Lin-Manuel Miranda talking over it, you know, to explain it to me. Mm-hmm. At least not yet. Like maybe at the end. But just let me soak this in for a little bit, a little bit more time. It feels like this could be the super extended ad for a, a DVD that's just entirely the concert footage, like explaining to you why you want that DVD from many, many different perspectives, you know, people's perspectives. But also, as I said, like, here are the historical reasons, here are the cultural reasons, uh, here are the political reasons, like, the doc moves through different phases. But in the end, if there was a product that it was selling, that was just footage of the uh, of the performances, or, you know, the the four CD box set uh, of this, the songs, like all of this would also just make a lot of sense. Yeah, but no one buys CD box sets or Blu-rays or DVDs anymore. Uh, alas, sigh. I feel kind of like sticking up for Questlove here <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I think there is something to be said about making choices, having to make choices, hard choices, in order to wrangle a two-hour documentary that could have been longer but wasn't. And, and so, and so if you're going to make something a little bit tighter you're going to have to curate and you're going to have to make choices and perhaps sometimes you're going to get abbreviated performance footage but you know maybe getting the gist of it is going to be you know enough for what the film is trying to do because the film has to do a lot you know this wasn't something this was this is a discovery for so many so many people that this festival you know existed and what it meant Uh, and i think questlove feels like rightly that he has to put all of that stuff in context, put the music in context, uh, you know, give you a picture of what Harlem was uh, like at the time, what was going on in the civil rights movement, what was going on in, in Vietnam, what was going on, you know, in, in, in so many aspects of the, the, the culture and in, in music. And there's, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a very tough thing to do. Uh, you know, and I think that there are, there are choices that, are, that he had to make here, hard choices that were made pretty intelligently, you know, even if they cause a certain amount of frustration, even if we do feel like, oh, God, I would love to see a full set of that. We don't get a full set of any anything in this in this movie. But well, when, even when like we, a full song, you know, I mean, yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 I, yeah. And I'm not attacking Questlove. I understand what he's trying to do. And like I yeah. said, I, I, I like what he did in this movie, again, where I feel like he almost made a series of mini documentaries and connected them together where he was trying to give this panoramic view of music in 1969, a lot of which is not often discussed in documentaries because really like there's like a fifth dimension documentary in this. There's yeah. like a gospel music in 1969 documentary in this. There's scores Racial of other- disparity about reaction to the moon landing. Yeah, he's yeah, exactly. There's, there's tons of things that he's, oh, that, that he's touching on. <laughs> it's um, a really good sequence. You know, to me, this is really a conversation about different styles of documentary filmmaking, whether you, have the talking head approach, or if you have the cinema verite approach. And, you know, we talked about Woodstock before, where there are no talking heads. There are no experts in that movie who are explaining to you why Woodstock is important. What Michael Wadley did in that movie is that he showed all these different images and he was showing you why it was important. He wasn't explaining to you why it's important. And I think that Again, I like this movie overall, but I think that there was maybe an opportunity to not explain things quite as much 
as this film does and to let the music itself and let the diversity of music at this festival speak for itself and let to convey these things cinematically rather than having experts on film explain what this is all about because i I will say that with this movie you know you mentioned the marilyn mccu interview footage i think that's great i think when they interview the artist that's great some of the other people again i don't want to pick on lin-manuel miranda but like he wasn't at this festival like why is he in this movie like he doesn't need to be in this movie you know i that's less compelling to me and i would say that if i were to list the things that i remember from this movie that were most compelling they're almost all musical performances in addition to like the Marilyn McCoo interview and maybe the Mavis Staples some of the artist interviews are are good but it's mostly the performances and i think that there that footage is strong enough you don't need someone talking over it to explain why this is significant. Well, we mentioned how there's there's different ways to shoot a documentary about a music festival, and, and I think that's kind of what we're here to discuss and comparing it to Woodstock, which we're gonna do after we take a short break. There are forty thousand, perhaps fifty thousand people at Mount Morris Park in Harlem, but they are not here watching the moon landing. They are here at the Soul Festival, part of the third annual Harlem Cultural Festival. And for many of them, this is far more relevant than the mission of Apollo 11. What's your feeling now that the astronauts have landed safely on the moon? I think it's very important, but I don't think it's any more relevant than, you know, the Harlem Cultural Festival here. I think it's equal. What are your thoughts? As far as science goes and everybody that's involved with the moon landing and astronauts, it's beautiful, you know, like me, I couldn't care less. The cash, this, is, this means more to you than that. Yeah, much more. Cash they wasted, as far as I'm concerned, in getting to the moon could have been used to feed poor black people in Harlem and all over the place, all over this country. So, like, you know, like, never mind the moon, let's get some of that cash in Harlem. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think... You know, I think one thing we should just start with is kind of what we were already talking about a little bit back when we were talking about uh, Summer of Soul, which which is the style. These are quite a contrast in styles. Woodstock is very verite and also pleasure than life and, you know, in the moment, whereas this is after the fact and reconstructing something from footage that was not shot by the actual uh, director uh, himself. So how, what difference does that make? Pretty big. I mean, I think I think there's a artistry to the way that Woodstock was shot that isn't present in uh, Summer of Soul. Uh, Summer of Soul is covered. It doesn't have necessarily a point of view in terms of the filmmaking itself. I mean, there are some choices that get made from a filmmaking perspective that are very strong in Woodstock before you even get to the editing room, just in the way it's shot, just in where the camera's placed, just in where what you put the emphasis on in terms of the type of, types of people that you're interviewing, uh, that you're shooting out in the wild. And then, of course, when you get on stage and you've got, you're choosing certain certain angles, um, Woodstock is a very, you know, it's just a, it's a great piece of, of filmmaking in a way that, and I'm not even talking about Questlove here, I'm talking about just the way that the Harlem Cultural Festival was covered, which is covered well, right? And so, and so, what? And of course, the other difference too is that is that Summer of Soul was a discovery. You know, I mean, this you know, it had a concert film been made at the time, maybe it would have resembled Woodstock a little bit more. It would have been just like you were. You, 
you should have been there to see this. This is what the, what this was like, you know. And I think we would have gotten uh, more just footage of sets and and more music and you know <laughs> you know and that would have been fantastic because people would have understood the context at the time they lived in the time but that wasn't really an option and, and i think it was a wise choice on Questlove's part to put all of this in context because it was discovering all of this footage after so long and it's so meaningful in uh, in, a, in musical ways and cultural ways that you need to kind of have some voices in there to tell you what what it meant because we don't the audience doesn't necessarily know we didn't this is 50 years later in terms of the style of the the coverage, just the event footage, one big difference that I kind of feel is what you were talking about with the Harlem Cultural Festival. It feels like it was being shot for TV or for mm-hmm. film, like for an eventual special. There is a lot of that sense of uh, just coverage is important, but maybe the the individual audience members or the the scene, as it were, isn't as important. We get plenty of shots of uh, just crowds. And we get that contextualized with people at the beginning talking about what it felt like to see a sea of black faces at an event when they weren't used to that, when they thought of themselves as uh, as a minority and they just did not see large gatherings of black people in public. It's not that the audience shots aren't there. It's just in Woodstock, you get a lot more of a feeling of camera people, individual camera people who are also experiencing the event. You know, the actual music footage is often a lot more close up and and intimate, but there's also just a lot of feeling of people kind of going down into the audience. I swear there was at least one cameraman, uh, maybe multiple cameramen, I couldn't tell, who were just totally pervin on the whole events. Uh, There are a lot of shots of- At at Woodstock, right? uh, uh, Yes, uh, at Woodstock itself. There are a lot of shots of bare-breasted young women uh, where the camera is very definitely focusing more on their breasts than their faces. There's that total creep shot sequence where somebody just plants the camera and watches a couple strip and descend into the bushes to make love. And the camera's back far enough that it really feels like they're trying to pretend that they're not watching. But the couple is very clearly aware of them and uh, decides to go ahead with it anyway. There's there's a little bit of a sense of luridness, I, I think, to the the Woodstock footage that I laugh at, maybe not entirely with, but in terms of the audience, I feel like at least one of those camera people like was not actually of that that scene or that generation and was still kind of like surprised and maybe a little delighted to see how how free people were with their bodies or how free people were with their opinions and it kind of cracks me up a little bit but at the same time I definitely give side eye to uh, whoever's watching that couple getting busy in the bushes and there's no feeling of that kind of personality in the footage of the Harlem Cultural Festival there's much more of a sense of Capturing the music, capturing the set, making sure that there's going to be like enough assembly footage for the edit, as opposed to like, okay, like go into the wilds and see what you find, uh, which which does seem to happen more in the Woodstock footage. I will say just on a technical level that the 1969 videotape looks a lot better uh, than I would expect it, it to look. And whoever recorded this did, did a fine job recording it as well. I mean, for, for, you know, we hear like lost footage, you think something that's, that's like completely unprofessional, but this is, this is quite good. If, if less artful in the way the film performances are filmed than Woodstock still nicely done is just in terms of just capturing the scene. 
Yeah, I mean, it looks again. I think there's that there's footage of some of the performers in Summer of Soul that it's like maybe the best you've ever seen some of these people, mm-hmm. like ever. Like maybe you go on YouTube to look for again, like Sonny Chirac or the Chambers Brothers. You might find them on, you might find a YouTube video of them, but it's not going to look as good as it looks in this film. The Ray Barreto stuff is amazing too. Yeah, Nina, Nina Simone stuff. Nina Simone, oh, geez, yeah. yeah. Oh my god, it's amazing. That, I, uh, <laughs> I can't believe it's, we waited so long to talk about Nina oh. Simone that that was unreal. <laughs> yeah, there's a feeling of intimacy to being on the stage with her that's intimidating, given just the force of her presence and the intensity of the poem that she performs in particular there's such a like a, a feel-good summer vibe to you know the fifth dimension and and stevie wonder and so much of this performance and then she gets up there and she reads that poem and it's it's raw and visceral and angry and you're right up in her face as she as she's doing it like there is an intimacy to the camera work i think in both of these uh, movies that's one of the reasons when scott's like do you want to be there i'm like no no give me me, give me the version of this story where I'm on stage with the person and like up close and personal in their face. One of the things we didn't cover about Woodstock was, you know, half a million people were there. According to Rolling Stone, about half of them didn't hear any music. The sound system wasn't strong enough. They were too far away. And with some of the footage of the Harlem Cultural Festival, I had the same feeling like the shots of the crowds show that there are people that are trying to experience this concert from two blocks away and can't get any closer than that because of the packed crowds. I think in both cases, you had people who were probably showing up trying to be a part of this event, but didn't get to experience like any of them, the musical aspect of it. And the fact that we're up there on stage with Nina Simone, like looking in her eyes as she's singing is just phenomenal. And I think when you watch Nina Simone, and I, I'm sure this is deliberate on Questlove's part, you can't help but think of 2021 with some of these performances. And I think the difference, the obvious difference between these two films is that Questlove is approaching this material as someone who is trying to make a connection between our contemporary moment and this festival from 50 years ago. And I think ultimately the message of this movie or the point of the movie that Questlove is trying to make is, you know, he's really making an argument for the history that gets forgotten in America and why it's forgotten and why that history needs to be rescued and brought to the present because it has contemporary relevance. With a film like Woodstock, you know, when that film was made, the importance of Woodstock was just a given really for the audience that that film was made for. And I think that the filmmaking in that movie, it really was again about creating this immersive experience for an audience that would see that movie in a movie theater where maybe you were at the festival, maybe you weren't, but this film was going to feel like you were there and it was going to recreate that almost like going to a rock concert, but you're in a movie theater. And it was, I think, about reiterating the greatness of that event. And again, depending on your point of view, either reiterating it or propagandizing the greatness of it. But it was very much about, again, like there wasn't a presumption that this wasn't important. Like this, people thought this was important. Now we're going to show it to you and you're going to enjoy it in the theater. Whereas with Summer of Soul, it really is a filmmaker making a case for this is something that's been overlooked. And I'm going to tell you why it's important, which is, I guess, why there are all the talking heads in the film to 
strengthen that argument to support the argument that Questlove is trying to make. But I think that that is ultimately the difference between these films. It's the difference between a film that is made in the moment and a, a film that is sort of reflecting on a moment 50 years after the fact, but is all, but is also trying to make a case that I'm also talking about today, really, in this film. Yeah, I mean, that that's a connection that we should get into this, uh, the director's approach to the material, how Michael Wadley and, and Questlove understood their assignments is so different and is so reflected in the films that re- result. You know, I think, Steve, you would probably, descri- you, you would describe Wadley's goal as, as uh, somewhat propagandistic or, at least, you know, it is the, you know, the official film of Woodstock. It is at least, at the very least, trying to give people who were not there or her perhaps the people who were there but couldn't hear what was going on a sense of like what it was actually like to be at woodstock you know and also to promote the message that woodstock was trying to send to convey about what it was and what it, what its significant significance was and, and what they could carry with them into the into, into the world maybe that's where the, these two films connect i mean there is kind of a a political agenda on both parts uh, you know a, a, so there's some messaging going on in in these films about what we should be taking away from these shows and uh you know it's present in woodstock even if it doesn't have talking heads telling us why it's important or fo- or stock footage uh, or anything like that i mean it, it it is still there's plenty of messaging in it and uh, plenty of things that were very relevant to the people at the time and then uh and with uh, summer of soul of course you, you have to think about the, the continuum between 69 and you know 2020 or 2021 i mean i feel like on some level summer of soul is in dialogue with woodstock the film I mean, it seems in a way like an answer film to Woodstock, just on the level of saying Woodstock as a film, it's this monolith and culture that when we talk about 1969, people only talk about Woodstock. And now we have this other film, Summer of Soul, where Questlove is basically making the argument that like, well, no, that's not the only thing that happened in the summer of 69. There was also this other event that in its own way is just as significant. Yeah, even then, the it was overshadowed. The original director tried to sell it as the Black Woodstock film, and you know it, it speaks to how this music was, uh, you know, treated as as of a lesser value to to the culture by the culture at large. That it would have to be here is the black version of the of the real thing, when in fact it's it's this remarkable achievement on its on its own uh, the, this concert series and doesn't it kind of become a story uh, doesn't it become news only when it's in contrast with the moon landing right i mean like <laughs> can you imagine is that is that how the networks might have covered something like this is just like wait a minute you know the moon the moon landing is going on and nobody nobody here seems to care and that's the angle right of that mm-hmm. story right right uh, which I think is another way of Questlove talking about these competing narratives, like how mm-hmm. one narrative becomes the narrative in history. And in reality, there's always multiple narratives happening in a culture, but the media, whoever it is, decides to focus on one thing and that becomes the whole story of everything. And, and this film is coming along and saying, well, no, this was happening at the same time. This was just as relevant to these people uh, so it should be, you know, even if it's 50 years after the fact, we should be acknowledging this. 
I think also there's an interesting point of contrast here in terms of the actual musical performances in in that and and the people who attend and in that Woodstock is a heavily white crowd and heavily white artist roster though it opens and closes with with, with black artists there are, there are people of color in between musical cross pollination is where it's at it's where the exciting stuff happens but at the same time you know as, as great as Joe Cocker is at Woodstock you we watch that and you watch the footage here it's like oh this is this is appropriation <laughs> you know what's going on here is you know the case where, where the the white modifiers of, of this these styles have gotten much much more popular and giving a much or giving a much higher profile platform than some of the artists who were still working in the original style one thing I thought was interesting was Sly and the Family Stone, which you, mm-hmm. you know, we alluded to earlier, because the only artists I believe they're both that are both right, right, yes. exactly. So that it's an interesting control thing comparing the two festivals, and mm-hmm. you know when you watch Woodstock, it's very much about sort of the hippie grandiosity of, of Sly and the Family Stone. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I feel like that aspect of them really comes across in the film. You know, it's all flares. It's all, you know, very sort of peace and love, that whole angle to them. Whereas in Summer of Soul, it seems so much less grandiose. It seems so much more gut level and direct. And I just think that's such a telling contrast between these two festivals. Like, or or maybe it's just the filmmaking that that we see. Because again, like in Woodstock, it's so big. It's so epic. And in Summer of Soul, like you feel like you're on stage with Summer of uh, with, with Sly and the Family Stone. It's really, I think, like I felt like I got a better look at them really in Summer of Soul than you do in in, in Woodstock. So I just thought that was a very fascinating contrast between the approaches. It was almost like they were like the neighborhood band in Summer of Soul. You know, and you don't get that feeling when you watch Woodstock. I mean, some some part of that may be the the sense to which they could be a neighborhood band. Like one of the things that stands out for me, and I guess this gets into the kind of the connection of uh, who attended these festivals, is that. For a lot of people, we we hear people um, talking about this specifically. The Harlem Cultural Festival happened in their neighborhood, happened a few blocks away from their home. It was something that was accessible to young people without necessarily a lot of funds, a lot of uh, ability to travel, maybe without the ability to travel safely cross country. Whereas, you know, Woodstock was a destination festival. Woodstock was was definitely you see those rows and rows and rows of cars and the uh, preponderance of campers and, and hippie vans where, you know, Probably a whole lot of people like piling into communal uh, vans in, you know, San Francisco or wherever and trooping cross country to to get to the festival. There is sort of a difference between, you know, one of them being especially the fact that one of them is a a six week concert series and one of them is a, a weekend long event. There is a sense that, you know, one of them is this is part of the community. This is something that that belongs here as part of this neighborhood that we all get to check in on together every week versus this is an expression of community, but it doesn't take place in any of our communities. And all of these people who are coming in to perform are are distinctly from outside the community. They're just making music that we consider representative of our community. 
Yeah, and I think in Woodstock, too, there was this fantasy of we're going to go in a field and we're going to sequester ourselves from society and we're going to do a lot of drugs and we're going to create this utopia. Get back uh, to the garden. Get back to the garden. Whereas, like you said, in Summer of Soul, it was about all of these people coming into a community that already existed and making people feel like their community was strong and that we're going to bring, we're going to fortify what already exists. And it does seem like a contrast between like a fantasy and reality in a way, because I think Woodstock is like a fantasy. It was a fantasy for like a lot of people. And it was a very seductive fantasy, but it was also kind of a dangerous fantasy because people spent many decades trying to recreate that and and it didn't work out so much when that happened. I think that's another fascinating contrast here. There's also something to be said for being able to go home at the end of the night, (laughs) you know, I mean, like, rather than having to, uh, you know, literally live among (laughs) among everyone out in the field for three days, uh, that makes a pretty big big difference. You can just you can really just bail and go home if uh, things become, uh, you know, uncomfortable. But but I think it does lend to, you know, there's um, there is a, a sense of warmth and joy and community in summer of soul that's that's it just has a different feel than, than woodstock i mean woodstock maybe is is you know deceptive in its way uh, is trying to promote this idea um rather than express what was you know organically present in a way that was uh but it's also easier i think for summer of soul to be able to kind of give you a, a feel for what, the way things were because it wasn't like you know it says at the beginning three hundred thousand people watched the show but of course you know that's three hundred thousand people over six different days and, and and so it's a little bit easier to bottle that up visually you know and, and give you that give you that you know, give you the, that sense of community in a way that's kind of impossible when you're dealing with, you know, a mid-major city, you know, on, in a field. And this is, I think, the interesting thing about Summer of Soul. And also, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit in the Woodstock episode, but I think Gimme Shelter is another interesting movie to bring up in this context because, you know, like, Woodstock came out, I believe, in March of seventy. And Gimme Shelter came out at the end of 70. So I have to imagine that the people, you know, the Maisels and Charlotte Swearin, you know, people that made Gimme Shelter, they must have been aware of Woodstock on some level when they were putting together their film. Because that also seems like an answer film to uh, Woodstock. And uh, certainly when they made their film, it seems like on some level they were trying to critique the ideology of Woodstock. This idea, again, that you can just get together in a field and it's going to be great. It's a bunch of groovy people getting together and you know everything's going to be hunky-dory. And then Gimme Shelter comes along and it's like the counterpoint to that. Uh, and then this film, Questlove, Summer of Soul, it seems like another counterpoint to that. Where, in a way, this is a film that's very idealistic on its own way but i think it's also pretty pointed about how nostalgia for the 60s has concealed a lot about what the actual time was like and how certain people tell stories about the 60s for so long they've become codified in how we understand the decade and that's drowned out other voices that you know 
have their own stories to tell. And we're many decades after the fact, but like those stories still have power. And, uh, you know, it really feels like this film is like intended to rectify that. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes you wonder what else is is out there too. I mean, hopefully there uh, there are other you know maybe never another treasure trove quite like Summer of Soul footage, but who knows? And something else that it, it's it's a good I think looking at these films back to back and talking about them together, it's a good reason to to keep cameras rolling on, on events like these and 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 um, you know keep looking to the past for a better understanding of where we are now, which I think Summer of Soul does really well well anyway woodstock is available to stream on all major streaming services it's also available on dvd and blu-ray summer souls is in theaters now and it's streaming on hulu we'll be right back with your next picture show It's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it your next picture show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, we're going to go to you first. What in the film world is good for you? Well, ironically enough, I was going to talk about Give Me Shelter. Uh, given given the direction that the conversation went in, I guess I don't need to, to go super in-depth as to why people would want to see this like seminal document about 1970 and, and the concert scene and... Uh, you know, the other side of the the peace and love generation and to some ways of thinking where it kind of ended. But I think it, it definitely kind of describes a, a really different vibe of on a kind of the a similar scene, similar material, similar issues um, with a concert, similar uh, settings. And some of the same sense of just like getting to see uh, like a, a really key act on stage when they were very young and famous. You know, there's to, to people who've seen movies like Shine a Light or who've seen, you know, the Stones remotely recently to our younger viewers, seeing them at this age, like in and of itself is a reason to to look up Gimme Shelter. But also, it's just really available. It's on the Criterion channel. It's on HBO Max. It's it's widely rentable. And to anybody that played along with this particular pairing, who, you know, sat down to the the hours and hours of uh, concert footage here, I would think Gimme Shelter would just be a, a perfect match uh, for all of this kind of a seeing a different approach to documentary and concert filmmaking but also just sort of a different approach to to telling the story of the 60s and what it felt like at this particular time and place for people embedded in music. Yeah, it's it's uh it's very good. And now it, it's getting me thinking about <laughs> what Steve was saying about uh sort of myth- mythology. It's just like you know, there there's almost kind of a mythology connected to that film too about like that's the signpost right that's the end of an era that's the end of the 60s everything the dream is dead <laughs> you know that like that's what that film repre- represents and i guess you can kind of gear the film toward that message or towards that uh, vibe yeah there's that shot of the helicopter leaving at the end of the movie which actually having watched woodstock it contrasts with a, you know, it may really be as, as Steve said, an answer film in some ways because there's a helicopter descending early in the film Woodstock, and there's this shot of this this, this helicopter taking off at the end. It really does feel like the, the end of something, like a, a moment uh, just completely shutting down. Uh, yeah, great, great movie. And I just have to say too that the Stones are great. 
at Altamont. You know, like I know that you <laughs> yeah. maybe don't want to say that. Like that musically, this was a great event because it was so tragic, but like still sound pretty great. And they also look amazing on stage. So yeah, th- yeah, there's a lot of nuance in that movie for sure. Uh where you're like, wow, this is this is kind of horrible, but also kind of amazing at the same time. It's good history, you know, it's it's good context, it's good you are there in the moment uh, kind of storytelling, and part of that storytelling is just, you know, the, the Stones were amazing at that point in time. Once again, here you are close up with them. I don't think there's any shame in, in saying that they were fantastic, you know, in, in spite of the way the event went. It's part of the scene, it's part of the scenario, it's part of history as, as much as anything else. And, you know, I can, t- I can Tina Turner were great on that and that as well. Uh, but was Jefferson Airplane great? <laughs> no. I, I'm, a, I'm a Jefferson Airplane skeptic, I've got, I got to say. Yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, and Graham Parsons gets punched out by mm, a Hells yeah. Angel in that movie. Yeah, there's, there's lots of crazy things going on. Yeah, seeing Ike and, and Tina on stage certainly has a uh, a different effect after our Ike and Tina Turner film pairing. But Scott, let's hear from you. What's what's good for you lately? Um, I had occasion to revisit Saturday Night Fever because the director's cut, which was made, uh, which was prepared for the 2017 TCM Festival, has found its way onto. HBO Max is like an extra. They did this with Margaret too, where they had the kind of 150 minute cut of that. And then as an extra below, you could watch the director's cut, which is far superior. And the director's cut of Saturday Night Fever is not that significant a difference. It's like three minutes more, three minutes longer. But it did, it was an interesting way to, it's an interesting reminder of how much different that film is than people either remember or assume uh, because it, you know it was a film that was uh, a huge hit at the time and then was made into a couple years later into a PG version to be shown with Grease which was another um, you know your paramount hit uh, you know that you know and of course the sound, it was driven by the soundtrack sales of the soundtrack and just you know the, the desire for everybody to see Saturday Fever and of course the reason why is because you would never want young children to see the original Saturday Night Fever which is so much darker and more disturbing than you might remember or assume and uh and so it was fascinating to kind of go back and watch saturday night fever again and really see how much it you know reflected a, a time where the studio movies could go to extremely uncomfortable and, and perhaps unsavory places and in, in this case you know uh, could show you the life of this character played by john travolta that who is that is utterly you know, miserable and, and violent and um, hopeless beyond the dance floor. Um, this is a film with gang fights. This is a film with suicide. Uh, this is a film with uh, most notoriously, you know, a rape sequence that is utterly chilling, you know, and, uh, and it's all set in, you know, in contrast to this footage at the, you know, at a, at a nightclub that with the beat with the BG's music and with Travolta and these incredible outfits and, and, um, it, you know, it, 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 performs a very powerful brew. And I think it's just worth kind of 
contending with the film now because I think it's a deeply uncomfortable movie to watch and perhaps a dubious movie. It's certainly dubious and in, in when you think about the fact that it is that some of the choices that were made, some of the choices to, to make it darker than as dark as it is was uh, out of uh, a need to adapt a story that turned out to be a total fabrication. So uh, that's another aspect of it that's kind of interesting. So it's on HBO Max now. Uh, uh, the director's cut is three minutes longer. I don't think you'll notice any huge differences <laughs> if you're familiar with the R-rated version. But I think it's worth you know stealing yourself up for it and seeing Saturday Night Fever for what it, what it really was instead of maybe how it might be remembered. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that of that film um, for a lot of the reasons you point out. And it really is a case where the cultural... Uh, memory of something is really at odds with the film itself. Really at odds. It's, yeah. it's wild. I remember seeing it for the first time and being amazed by how much it reminded me of Mean Streets. Yeah. Like, mm. like the Travolta character, it's, he's almost like Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro in that movie in the same body, you know, because he has some of the Catholic <laughs> guilt and he's also just like a knucklehead. And, uh, <laughs> it, it, and, it, and Travolta to me, uh, he's made probably as many bad movies as anyone, but like his top five movies, I'll take over almost anybody. Like his top five performances, I think, are just incredible. And starting with that film, I think he's just that's like one of the great star making performances i think that that, that there's ever been For sure. uh, so yeah if you've seen Gotti and you're like i can't believe travolta <laughs> go see him as tony in oh saturday night favor it's a, yeah, for sure it's totally different for sure well what about you keith I'm going to uh, start my recommendation with a uh, plug that also kind of doubles as a disclosure, which is that I have a book coming out on October 17th called Age of Cage. It's all about Nicolas Cage films. So I guess I'm a little in the tank for Cage things in some ways, but I also feel like I still, as someone who's seen every Nicolas Cage movie at this point, I bring a certain amount of critical distance uh, to it. So that, all which is a, way, a lot of throat clearing to say that the movie Pay which is out now is fantastic and i think it's one of the best nicholas cage performances on a long career that uh has many great performances in it it is the first film of a writer director named michael uh Cernoski, who um wrote the screenplay co-wrote the story was with vanessa block uh and it's kind of hard to describe which i think it's why it's a tough film to market it's kind of been sold as this revenge thriller like with like sort of you know i see a lot of like john wick but with a pig or taken but with a pig um <laughs> and that is really true of the initial premise of it in some ways uh, in that that nicholas cage plays a a forest dwelling hermit who uh's prize uh truffle pig is stolen and he goes to the city of Portland to find his truffle pig. But that's really where the resemblance to a Revenzor ends. Like we talked about pairing this movie on the show, and I could not really think of a good one to pair it with, because in some ways it's closer to Big Night or Ratatouille as it is to Taken or John Wick. It is a film about food and about loss and about alienation. And it's got a lot of um, some really great dark humor in it as well. But it's ultimately... I found it an extremely moving film that I don't really necessarily want to spoil too much 
beyond giving you that initial premise. Uh, I will say that co-stars Alex Wolf, who was in like he was on Bad Education, which we covered, young actor uh, in the Jumanji movies. I think he was in a Nickelodeon show, right? And uh, Adam Arkin, who we haven't really seen that much of in a while, but he gives a really great performance as a character who ends up playing a very important role in this story. Uh, and it's a, I think it's a remarkable debut. And one of those films that I can't really imagine anyone else playing the lead role and the director seems to understand uh, how to use Nicolas Cage, which isn't always the case. I mean, Cage makes a lot of movies and sometimes it's very easy to lean in, into the, you know, the bigness of Cage or the expectations that Nicolas Cage brings to a movie. And this is kind of, this is uh, undermines a lot of that. It's, it's in some ways, if you, if you, if you cross Joe, which is a really, a really good movie that, that he gives a really naturalistic performance in with a violence free version of Mandy, you're kind of, <laughs> kind of, kind of approaching what this film is. I don't know. I, I, I feel I'm a little worried it's kind of going to get lost in the mix because it's a tough film to sell, and I feel like people who show up expecting taking with the pig are going to be uh, confused and maybe, hopefully, not disappointed. Hopefully, they can recalibrate their expectations because I think it's a remarkable film. So it's in theaters uh, now. Uh, so see it there. I think it's the only place you can see it right now. Steve, how about you? Well, I'm also going to plug something that I'm involved in, but is also related to Woodstock and Summer of, of Soul, uh, which is a documentary called Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, uh, which uh, debuts on HBO on July 23rd and will be available to stream on HBO Max. I am in the film as uh, one of the talking heads in that film. I'm also... Uh, a consulting producer. The film is directed by a guy named Garrett Price, who had he made a film that came out in 2019 called Love and Tasha, which is about the actor Anton Yelchin. Oh yeah, uh, that's good. It's a good movie. Yeah, the, the gifted young actor who passed away. Uh, his, very, his voice uh, is provided, and when they read the letters by Nicholas Cage. Oh really? Well, yeah. there we go. It all it all connects. Yeah. Um, this uh, film, Woodstock 99, of course, it recounts the famous sequel to Woodstock uh, that happened at the end of the 90s uh, that was famously marred by various disasters. There was a huge riot that ended the festival. There were a number of sexual assaults uh, that happened at the festival, uh, as well as you know terrible price gouging and overflowing porta-potties, terrible weather lots of new metal bands playing like very uh, aggressive sets uh, all the way down the line and also the film connects to a lot of the broader cultural issues that were happening in 1999 including uh, events like Columbine the the massacre at that high school at Napster how that upended the music industry and really looking at Woodstock 99 in the context of a lot of the social upheaval that was happening in America at the end of the 90s and as we were going into a new century. And uh, I'm biased, of course, because I worked on the movie, but I think Garrett did a great job of really showing what went wrong at this festival as well as tying it to uh, some of the broader, again, concerns that were happening at the time. And also looking back at Woodstock, the film that you know we were talking about before, really talking about the toxicity of nostalgia, the dark side of nostalgia. What happens when people believe the myth and they forget the facts of an event and they don't learn the lessons of the past and they end up repeating them and how that can sometimes 
really hurt future generations. I think that's a, a one of the many fascinating stories in this movie. So again, it uh, will it, it, it debuts on HBO on July 23rd, and you can see it on HBO Max after that. And uh, in my very biased opinion, I think it's a very good music documentary. So uh, please check it out. I just love how you equate overflowing porta potties with uh, lots of new metal bands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much what you know. Tomato, tomato. Those two things, aren't they? Yes. Although, again, I you know we end up defending Limp Biscuit oh, a little sakes. bit in, in the film because they were they were scapegoated for some of the terrible things that happened there, some of the bad behavior. Right. When in reality, you had these baby boomer organizers that really did a terrible job and abused the people there and created a really created an environment where I think people ultimately felt like they were going to rise up against the festival. Like, like they were going to achieve that feeling of community at Woodstock <laughs> by tearing down Woodstock 99. I think that was uh, one of the, one of the many ironies of that festival. So uh, yeah, I, I it, and again, I think Garrett does a great job of telling that story in the film and, I, I think people are going to like it. It, it. There's a lot in that movie, and uh, it's an entertaining, if also difficult, movie to watch at times. But ultimately, entertaining to watch. And, and, I, and I should, I should also, uh, if uh, our listeners want some supplementary material, uh, I was. Uh, talking to Steve before the show about uh, going back and reading part 10, the 10th and final part of his uh, Whatever Happened to Alternative Nation series, which which ends on Woodstock 99. And it is it is an incredible read. It will take you quite a while to get through it, but but uh, I think you, you I think it's kind of worth seeking out on the AV Club. Uh, or you know, I found it by basically putting in you know you know St- Steve Hyden Woodstock 99. It'll Turn up on Google if you want to find it that way. But uh, if you if you don't if you want the un the uncut raw Steve Hyden experience, there you go. Go go for that one. Yeah, well, you know, back in the olden days of the AV Club when we all worked there, and uh, thankfully they've left some of our stories up uh, for now. <laughs> so you know, I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Okay, well, thanks for those recommendations. Oh, I'll throw in one more. Another really good. Um, alternate version of a giant music festival film is it's watt stacks which you know it's a whole other thing we can get into but but you know so with the name watt stacks check it out uh we'll be right back after the break and that's it for this edition of the next picture show our next pairing will drop on july 27th and august 3rd scott what do we have on tap the new documentary Roadrunner looks at the life and death of Anthony Bourdain, the renegade chef turned author turned host of globetrotting TV series like No Reservations and Parts Unknown. Bourdain was one of America's finest exports, a deeply empathetic and intrepid tourist who loved food but always looked to put his culinary adventures in cultural context. He was also a troubled and contradictory character who took his own life in 2018. Though director Morgan Neville clearly has affection for his subject, Roadrunner is suitably uncomfortable as a piece of documentary portraiture. That warts-and-all approach called to mind Terry Zweigoff's brilliant 1994 documentary Crumb. Much like Bourdain, the underground comics artist Robert Crumb, or R. Crumb, is an unconventional figure who's had a difficult and sometimes controversial relationship to his own unlikely fame. On our next pairing of episodes, we'll look at the similarities between Bourdain and Crumb and the approaches these two documentaries use to understand their elusive subjects.
In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Woodstock, Summer of Soul, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of The Next Picture Show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Steve, we'll start with you. I am on Twitter at Stephen underscore Hayden. You can also read my work at uh, uprocks.com. Tasha? I'm on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. I'm the film and TV editor at polygon.com, and you can occasionally find my writing there. Uh, Keith, what about you? Uh, I'm a freelance writer. I, I write all over the place. Uh, um, you can find me at places like uh, GQ, The Ringer, Vulture, uh, TV Guide. Um, you know, and you can always you can catch up with what I'm doing via my Twitter feed, which is KFIPS3000 on Twitter. Scott, how about you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my work in the New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, you know, I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, Genevieve. Where, where will we find Genevieve, Keith? Uh, you can find her at Twitter occasionally at, at Genevieve Kosky. She is uh, one of the driving forces of Vulture's uh, TV uh, section. You, you know, as for the show itself, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. We have an episode of Luca coming on, on Luca coming up. It's going to be really good. Um, if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast or this one. Um, thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Oh.